Hello and welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. My name's Victor and joining me in this episode is Christina. Welcome to the show, Christina. Hi, Victor. Thank you so much for having me in, in the show. I'm really, really excited. So today, the two of us, we are going to be discussing science reporting, how to read a piece of science reporting, how to establish how trustworthy the reporting is, and general science media literacy skills. Before we jump right into that, Christina, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. So I'm a science communicator, which is really cool to say because it's what I wanted to be uh, most of my life. I work at the Natural History Museum doing that. And basically what I do is engage the public of the museum with uh, the science that goes behind the scenes. We have about more than 350 scientists working on many different projects, on many different fields. And I basically go around nagging them in order to get information, tell the public or even invite them to come and talk to them. But my background is in biology. I studied biology because I really, really loved it. And when I started studying it, uh, I realised that I, I, I really enjoyed talking about it, uh, but not so much being in the lab doing it. Um, so that's why I, I directed my career into talking about science, basically. I can imagine that having the science background helps you translate the science for the public as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's really important. You get amazing journalists who know so much about science and can transfer that knowledge to the public. And, and you can see it and you can really, really spot it really well. Um, but sadly, you also get the opposite. You get people who are amazing journalists, but uh, when it comes to complex topics of science, you, you can see where, where that lacks. And you get the same thing the other way around. Scientists are great scientists, but not great communicators. So I want to think that I've I've got a little bit of, of both worlds there. And I've, well, I've trained myself and I've dedicated my career to it. I thought it'd be great to have you in on this episode, because the last few episodes, we've been talking a lot about climate change and how to communicate and teach that subject and the fact that it's a really um, complex topic. It's a complex science. There's a lot of uncertainty built in. And there's also a lot of news stories that are related to climate change. Um, and so I thought we'll do a few episodes looking at science media literacy. So today what we're doing is we're going to talk about a story that has been uh, going on in the background over the course of this summer. And it's about these hornets. So we've got three articles we're going to talk about today. We're going to do a bit of compare contrast with a few of them. First one is from The Independent. It was published on August 2nd, and it's called Murder Hornets, Trapped in the U.S. for First Time as Officials Race to Eradicate Colonies Before Breeding Season. I think the, head, the headline says it all, doesn't it? It sends shivers down your spine, I think. So the other two articles are from National Geographic. The first one was published May 4th. And it's titled, Murder Hornets Have Arrived in the U.S. Here's What You Should Know. Second one is from August 3rd, and it's Murder Hornet Mania Highlights Dangers of Fearing Insects and Spiders. So I think let's start with the article from The Independent. One of the things that I think about when I'm reading any piece of news is I think about how loaded is the language. And what stands out, as you mentioned, is the title the headline of that article is Murder Hornets Trapped in the U.S. as Officials Race to Eradicate. So there's a lot of really loaded language there in terms of sort of scary terms. You get this sense that it's a really urgent 
big problem mm-hmm. when you hear murder hornets that sounds really serious um what were your thoughts on that same thing that was the, when I opened the article and I read it I just went okay these words are very specific and you've mentioned already murder hornet race to eradicate uh, but you have all the other as you said loaded words there like colonies as well colonies are already put in your head the image of many things many many individuals and then it says the breeding season and i think because of this um image of insects that we have in our heads of loads of eggs of a of a different insect as well coming out i think the breeding season also gives the feeling of this is going to be an explosion and we're gonna have so many murder hornets so yeah absolutely you you read this and immediately panic at least want to know i mean is what a headline is for is to catch your eye and then make you want to read the article but i still think it's a little bit too much so i think you're you're right the headline is definitely there to pull your attention in and so whenever i see a headline like this and it does make me kind of want to read the article but it kind of puts my guard up immediately of I need to be a little bit careful in this because how much of the article is going to follow in the same line as this headline? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be exaggerating things a bit much? So yeah. it makes me want to look a bit closer at it. Absolutely. I think it's also because we work in science communication, science education. We have that more critical side of it. And I'm sure like, you've been seeing this as well even with other topics like diseases, pandemics, you know when you have to be weary of what comes next and when you actually have to analyse. Even though the Independent is a very trustable source, I feel. It's not, you know, it's not um, a newspaper that you don't know where it comes from, you don't know who publishes it. And I think that is the thing, is that you can't always use the publication as a guideline of how you should read an article you really should take it as an article by article kind of thing Mm -hmm. just because it's from a really high profile or like a national newspaper or an international website it doesn't always mean that every single article is going to meet the same high standards next thing i look at when i'm looking at something like this is that accuracy of the language that's used so there's a line in this article where it says that they're called murder hornets due to their lethal sting to humans now my problem with that or when i read that it sounds like oh if you're stung by one of these hornets you're going to die yeah (laughs) (laughs) that also that also caught my eye when i was reading it because you read that and then there's a slight kind of like they correct themselves then they later say multiple stings can be deadly to humans and then you go okay well that that means that if I get one bite I don't die I need to get stung by many which also makes you think okay there's many other insects that can do that as well bees can do that to you as well like you can die even normally if you have an allergy but even if you don't have an allergy and you get stung by many many wasps or many many bees there's also a chance that you might die as well. So how how accurate is this? How much is it trying to scare me uh, into thinking that these awful hornets are here to destroy us? But also even saying these these core murder hornets is also a little bit of like a stretch, isn't it? Because that's not they haven't been known known as for that name for that long. They're core Asian giant hornets, which is already quite you know when they tell you an insect is a giant insect, it's still you know, makes you feel a bit, okay. But um, 
yeah, stating they are, that they are called murder hornets is not that right. The more accepted common name for what they're talking about there is the Asian giant hornets. And I think that that's, while it can have that same feeling as murder hornets, because when you think giant, you think really giant. But then when you look at one of these hornets, they, they are legitimately very big. So I think at least that that's like an accurate name. Like in the context of all the wasps and hornets in the world, they are extremely big when you compare it even with that. So at least that there's like it's the accuracy of the term and not as as loaded as as the term murder. Um, <laughs> but I, again, you were mentioning brings up the next thing of how important context is. And that's for me, one of the biggest problems with the independent article is that it's a really short piece that does not give you very much context. We're talking a lot about their impact on humans, like how dangerous or risky are they for humans. And that's something that the article does not go into like at all. There's no indication of how risky they are. There's no indication of how likely you are to actually get stung. What are the situations where you are likely to get stung? How likely are, are you to die if you do get stung? And when you look at all of those pieces, there's not really that much more risk from these hornets than any other bee or, or wasp species. In digging around a little bit about this, what people are normally citing is that from this species, um, it's something in the ballpark of 40 people a year die from being stung by these in Japan. From the CDC, they keep track of deaths from bees and wasp stings in the United States, and that it averages around about 60 deaths per year, quite a small number in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. It's on the same order of, um, they also keep, uh, the National Weather Service keeps track of how many deaths there are by lightning strikes, and there's about 27 deaths per year from lightning strikes. So it's in the same ballpark as that, actually. And if you think, like, how worried should you be about being struck by lightning, the answer is not very. And so it's the same with of dying from one of these bee stings. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that, I mean, that's the context that this article doesn't give you, is that risk yeah. of like, okay, actually the overall risk from any of the bees and wasps is quite low. And then the risk from this one specific species of wasp is going to be even smaller. It's, it's definitely all about context and why you're talking about something. And I think there is other aspects that by reading all the articles, by reading a little bit on literature on these on these hornets that you understand why the authorities are worried that they are there but the the reason why you know this becomes an issue and and authorities worry about it is not because they can sting people is all the things that are not mentioned on this article and that's what i'm missing there is and then this is what also makes me want to think the message is not there's an invasive species in in the u.s it's more like you're in danger yeah. And again, even even the way they treat the way that people can react to it, you're telling people that they're in danger. You can tell them, OK, this is their solutions. These are the, the, the things that you can do in order to avoid that danger. And the only thing that they do at the end is telling you how to capture or not even tell you there's like there's some advice on how to do this here. But they don't tell you how, why or how your help, how you capturing a hornet is going to help the grand scheme of what's going on with the hornet. I think this can lead us into now the, the National Geographic articles, there are the two of them, which are quite different in some ways, because uh, the number one thing for me is that they give you a lot more 
context. The National Geographic articles spend a lot more time talking about the main concerns about them. So the first one, the murder hornets have arrived in the U.S., here's what you should know. It does spend some time talking about the dangers that these pose to humans. So it does give you more actual numbers. It talks about the number of people who are killed. So it tells you about the absolute numbers. So 42 people in a single Chinese province in one year were killed by these hornets. If they gave you a bit more context with that, I think it would probably be a bit better because it still doesn't give you quite a sense of how worried should you be about this. So it gives you absolute numbers, but because it doesn't give you any point of comparison, it's hard to know it still feels scary. And I, and I think that's, in a way, it's fair enough. And I don't think they are, you know, stepping back from that, because even in the headline of the National Geographic, they call them murder hornets. They put them uh, between quotation marks, which already says something about it. But the, the, the word murder is there. And here's what you should know also calls for kind of like call for attention. But I think it's a little bit more weary. It's like, this is happening. This is what you can do. And stays more in in the informative that and even though it doesn't give the the context it doesn't it does tell you okay so they are dangerous because they are because i mean if they if one of them is things you it's going to hurt and if you have a condition already it could be dangerous but what i like about this article a lot is that it tells you as well why authorities are concerned which is not that the murder hornets are going to murder people but because the murder hornets are going to murder bees. And then it expands on that. Um, why is that a problem? And why is that a problem to then people? It's not a direct problem. It's not that they're going to sting you and kill you and kill 50 people a year. It's that it has many other effects. I, I think you're absolutely right that it does set it into that context of the reason why there's more concern about this is because of the impact on honeybee populations and wild bee populations. And it goes in and describes that that worry, which is, I think, again, like a lot better. It also answers a question that I had that, again, the independent article didn't bring up because it didn't bring up the impact on wild species at all. Why are we worried about it in North America, but there's not really a worry about it in Asia? And so it goes into talking about how uh, honeybees in Asia, the Japanese honeybees, haven't been wiped out by these hornets, right? And it's because they've co-evolved with them. They describe a bit of the behavior that the bees have that help them to defend against the hornets. That's a really good setting of the context for why in North America and also here in Europe, why we're concerned about it. And it's because the bees that are found in these countries in Europe and North America don't have those adaptive behaviors to help defend them against the hornets, which is nice because then it's also, it's not that these hornets are necessarily like much more vicious and whatnot. It, it's also that the local bees are, are lacking something. So it's like, it gives you a more rounded view. And I think that's really important always to bring up when you're talking about about invasive species and why governments have to worry when they spot an invasive species in a country where, you know, they are an invasive species, they shouldn't be there. And, and why we need to make people aware of what that means. And that I was missing a little bit. It would have been important to kind of like brush up a bit on 
what is an invasive species and why they are dangerous. I think they talk about it, but I think we need to start calling things by the name so people become aware of, of that as well. But in general terms, I think they talk about it. They mention that they are there and that the dangers that they are uh, provoking, that they are making a population of bees that is already endangered a little bit more endangered. And I think the problem that the independent article doesn't mention that is that if they tell you that there's an insect that can kill you, you're going to go and buy insecticides and you're going to go and use that insecticide. And if you use that insecticide, insecticides are not very specific. So probably if you buy an insecticide that is going to kill uh, giant hornets, it's also going to kill bees. So you're not helping the problem. You're actually adding to it. Yeah, and I think that's something that the, the second article that we have from National Geographic from August 3rd, Murder Hornet Mania Highlights Dangers of Fearing Insects and Spiders. That's something that they did. So they, the first National Geographic article from May 4th, it does have this awareness that you can see in it of the potential impact that this article can have. And so it does do a bit of work to give you that broader context. But I think it doesn't quite address exactly your point. Like, okay, if you go out and try to kill these hornets, what are the potential other implications for that? That's something that the second article from August 3rd directly addresses, right? Like fear of insects and spiders. These are the consequences that we have of of having like an uninformed reaction to that and, you know, going out and killing insects indiscriminately, not appreciating the benefits that these insects have. And that's something that none of these three articles talks about is putting the behavior of these hornets in the context of wasp behavior generally and talking about the fact that their behavior is not particularly unusual. The fact that they hunt down bees and bring them back to their larva, that is not unusual wasp behavior. Like wasps, all of them are carnivores. They all do this behavior where they will kill or incapacitate other creatures in some form and use it to feed their their young. That's just something that wasps do, right? And I think if you put the behavior in that context, it becomes less scary because you realize that, ah, oh, these, are, these are specializing in perhaps this particular kind of behavior, but it's not particularly unusual. And by not addressing that, it makes them scarier. That's a really, really important point that you've made there, I think, is... And it comes back to putting things in context, so getting people to understand, and it, and it goes back as well to the invasive species and what that means, is getting people to understand that, you know, these murder hornets, they are actually uh, an animal, a living being that lives in an environment and that has a role in that environment, and that the problem here is not the animal itself, is that has been introduced in a place where they're not natural from and they're going to have a knock-on effect and that's what scientists that are assigning them in the US will have to understand how are they going to kill our bees how are they going to be affected by the winter um how are they going to affect many many other things and and that takes me to why when you're writing an article when you are scripting a video when you are creating a show or an activity you really have to have a clear message that you want to send then you can build on that and you can check whatever you've developed in order to find if you have that message if not and if you then see that that message wasn't 
received by the audience, then you can do what the National Audiographic did in like a couple of months afterwards, write an audit article and say, look, this is what we missed here. This is what, something that you should still know. Um, and there maybe wasn't in that article. But it, it comes down to what you were saying at the beginning, Victor, is context, is context, context, context of, of what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think with the independent one, I think it's it's possible to do kind of an assessment of what is the potential impact of this article going to be, right? So if you do that from an informed position on the independent article, when you look at the independent article and you look at what's the potential impact of it, you can see that this article is going to get people really worried about this potential threat to them and you look at what is the likely reaction that they're going to have to it and basically it's about controlling killing because that's the only thing that the article talks about and then you look at the potential side effects of that and that leads you to the impact on these wild species and so i think overall the impact of that article is negative because people are they're not better informed to deal with the situation and then it has negative potential consequences on other species yeah let's zoom out i think now maybe to more generally when you come across a piece of news reporting that's about the environment or about science what do you do when you are reading it like what's your thought process i I think i try to find out what they're trying to tell me what is the main idea that they're trying to pass on me and whether i think that's accurate or not I also look a lot into the language. I think language is so important, especially if you're writing. You 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 are using words, and you're using words to convey that same message. And that's I think the message is what what normally makes me go, ooh, okay, I don't know about this. I will have to check another article to actually know if this is quite relevant or not. Um, for me, it's also as well when I get that feeling, checking on the sources of like where where who have they talked to. What articles have they read? Where is this article coming from? Uh, because then that gives you another feeling. But I think sometimes, you know, the sources can be very reliable. They can, they might have thought with an entomologist, a, a person who studies the insects that they are talking about, for example, in this case. Though obviously you have a journalist that then is shaping the information in a way, in the way that they want to transmit it. So I think it's also important as well to think about the, the the person who's writing the article is it a person who you know is a science journalist that is well known that have done this before that you've read all the articles that you felt comfortable with or is it just you know a person that was giving them a, a press note and they wrote a whole article from it and then coming back to what you said victor context how much context is it giving me how much information is it giving me because you know, I have a background in biology, but I might read articles that of topics on fields that I've never really looked in depth into that I don't know anything about. And that comes into all the things. So, I, you know, at the moment we are in the middle in the middle of a, of a pandemic. I don't know anything about viruses and virology. So for me, when I read an article, I always put it a little bit on a, like an isolation period and then wait and see what else. Um, I find about the same topic. Uh, but but even me being a science communicator, I've sometimes done that thing when I read an article, I get really worked up about it, whether it's positive or negative, and then I go and tweet about it. And I think that's something that I've learned to be more careful with 
the sources and what I'm posting and to check more on, on, on the topics I'm talking about. I think it's important to really give it a, th- a second thought, wait a little bit and then come back to it as well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely key, especially nowadays and especially over the last, you know, since the start of this year with the pandemic, there's been this real flurry of science that's come out and all the news sources are keen to pick up on virtually any paper that comes out and then just immediately report it. And what's been happening in the scientific community, at least in virology and immunology, is because everyone is really keen to help out as quickly as possible, a lot of institutions are putting their papers up on preprint servers so that the, the wider like scientific community has access to this information much quicker than normal. Mm-hmm. But the flip side with that is those papers haven't been fully reviewed yet, right? So their methodology hasn't been fully reviewed yet. So there might be problems there. The conclusions they come to might, again, be problematic, might not be quite well founded enough in the evidence that they've collected. And that's what the review process is supposed to catch. And it's important to bear that in mind. So I think with with a lot of things, if it's a news story that feels like it's popped up out of nowhere... I think it is important to, as you say, put it on hold for for a little bit, see how the story develops before putting too much weight behind it, you know, as more different places gather more evidence to make sure that it's really solid. And I think that, that that's why science communication as as a professional is really, really important, because as the public, we're not aware of all the processes and all the rules that publishing and um, writing articles and publishing papers uh, that scientists go through. So we might, you know, if we see a pre-published paper, we might actually take it as a, you know, reliable source. It's a scientist talking about it. Why wouldn't it be right? And I think that that's why science communication is important because if the scientists, if the scientific institutions are actually communicating in, in the right way, in the right platforms, what they are um, coming up with, then journalists shouldn't be going to places where they shouldn't be taking the information from. If you have a, a good channel of throwing information to to the media in general, to the public, then you won't get, of course you will get some of them, but you won't get a mass of not checked scientific information that is out there for scientists, but not for the public in a way. And I'm not talking about secrecy. I'm just talking about knowing how to communicate that and making sure that that is communicated to the public in the right way. Yeah, and again, that's putting it in context. So if you're reporting on the results of a particular piece of research, it's important to also report on how that one piece of research fits in with the broader body of research. And that's what, at least right now, a lot of sources aren't doing very well, in in my estimation. They're, They're keen to report the results of that one study because often they're quite you know, the the news sites will pick quite exciting ones to report on, but because they don't put it in the context of the other similar research that's been done on, on similar questions, it's hard to know, again, how much weight do you put onto that one study. And I think this is, again, something that's positive about now having the internet and access to so much information and also access to news on the internet is that it's much easier to 
find out where all your sources are. Like if you think of reading a newspaper versus reading an article on the web, when you've got a newspaper, there's not room to put, you know, all kinds of footnotes over where the information came from, right? Space is really at a premium. But when you're reading it on the web, there's there's room for there to be those footnotes that have the sources or as links within the article itself. So that's something that I was noticing in this one. When you look at the independent article, there are links embedded within the article, but they're to other news articles on the independent, whereas in National Geographic, the links embedded within the article go to the sources of information. They go to um, government websites, they go to research papers. And so when I'm reading uh, an internet news article, that's something that I really look for is what kinds of sources are being cited in that article. And that really gives me much more confidence um, in, in the article that I'm reading if I know that they're pulling evidence from multiple different sources. So another thing that I look for in a web article is goes to this phrase that's commonly used. Don't know where it came from, but it's that uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You can apply that to going back to language. Emotional language requires justification. So if you're using a term like murder hornet, you need to justify why you're using such an emotionally loaded term. And if you're making claims of people dying from these hornets, you need to present your evidence for that. And that's something that the Independent article did not do, but the National Geographic articles did do. So that gives me, again, more confidence. And also, I think that, I mean, I haven't double-checked the, the articles for it, but I do get a more get more confident on an article when I'm reading it is when they are not stating facts. So let me explain that. So when an article is saying we're not sure about the effects of this yet or scientists um, have found this but they're still trying to find out um, how does this relate to other aspects of it. So making clear that science is not a fix a static thing. The scientists are not machines that turn out answers to things. More like, this is how we think that these are going to, hornets are going to affect the environment. This is how we think, you know, people's reactions can be. By seeing this, uh, that the people are buying more insecticides, we think that this could have an effect on that. That also gives me a lot of confidence because it takes me back to what actually science is. It's just questioning everything and trying to figure it out what something is happening, but not having absolute truths of everything, always being ready to be proven wrong as well. It's tricky because you want an article to be straightforward and give you the information that you want, but you also have to give people the feeling of this is not an absolute answer. If you come in a month, we might have an article that says something slightly different. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. For regular listeners, they'll know that the last episode that we put up was a journal article that was looking at precisely this issue was how do you deal with the nature of science as a process and the fact that a lot of scientific conclusions are not absolute truths. They're based on a, a body of evidence, but we're constantly adding to that body of evidence. So nothing is ever quite 100% absolute truth, we're always trying to approach that. When it comes to reporting on science, I think that it's really key to differentiate between what is pretty much certain 
and what are we still working on? What what are the bits that we're still not quite sure of? And being really clear about that. I think a common mistake in science communication is this feeling of if you talk about uncertainty, it'll make the public feel like they can't trust that. And I think that's that's quite a mistake. I think it's a mistake because if you report things as being really certain and absolute and true, because you feel like the public are then going to believe it, and the, the, you think that the public are going to be able to put weight on that. The problem is that when additional evidence comes up that might contradict that initial message, that has a really detrimental effect. It really undermines the public confidence in science. And so I think it is really, it's really important to make clear how certain scientists are about different things, right? Like we can be really quite certain that this giant hornet is a type of wasp, right? Like that's one thing. And in terms of what the impact of that is going to be on native wildlife, that's going to be uh, a little bit more uncertain. We can estimate, we can show the evidence of why we think that, but because it's a projection, you know, the hornets are not widely spread. We don't have detailed studies of the impact that these hornets have had on native bee species in particular areas. Um, it's all, it's still quite uncertain. So I think just acknowledging this is what we know and this is what we're still working on can actually really support public confidence in science because it's less likely that when new information comes up, the public are going to feel like the earlier article lied to them, right? Which is a problem. If you make it, if you make something sound really certain, and then later on evidence comes out that contradicts it, then it makes the public feel like, oh, that first article lied to me, or these scientists have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, or even I won't have to worry about it. So, for example, the hornets. I think it's been going on for a while. There were there were um, news articles coming up last year about this time. So this is the second time that they're finding them. They're finding them in other areas. If people saw that you're in danger um, angle last year, and then they didn't feel in danger. They didn't get stung by a, a wasp, a, a hornet, and then nobody died during that year, no, not even close to those 50 people that were supposed to be dying on that year. Then this year, when this article comes up, they'll be like, don't care about it. But then if you go a step further, if you tell people to be scared of a giant hornet that's going to kill you, and then the giant hornet is not evident, you don't see it, then you're not going to be weary about it. And you're not going to be weary about all the aspects of it that might be actually dangerous. Mm-hmm. Or like secondary dangerous, but dangerous nonetheless. And then you get the, the opposite reaction to what you actually were trying to say. Um, and we've seen this a lot on, on the pandemic, I feel. But you say something, and then if you exaggerate, people lose trust on scientists. And that's really, really dangerous. Yeah. So let's let's recap a little bit here. So when reading a piece of reporting on science or the environment, things that we look for are really loaded language. And if we hear that, that generally starts to send up red flags that we might need to pay a little bit closer attention Mm -hmm. to this. And also that really emotional language should have some kind of justification for it. We need to know why they're choosing to use that language in the article. Uh, Otherwise, maybe it's just purely to grab your attention. Next thing to do is look for the context. How does what this is reporting on fits in with the bigger picture? How does it fit in with other research? 
if it's about something risky, if it's about risk, compare it with something that people will be familiar with in their everyday lives, maybe, so that they can know, you know, approximately how worried to be about it. And citing of your sources, at least in an online article, is again, for me, something that's quite important. Do they cite a variety of publications? Do they cite a variety of scientists? I think, I think those are the main things. Obviously, when you're reading articles, all the things might pop up. Oh, that was, that was the... So the last thing I look at, and again, mm-hmm. tends to be with online news articles, is I'll try and see what other news outlets have to say about this. Yep. And very often what you will find is that almost all the news are outlets have very, very similar articles that come out at approximately the same time. What that tells me is that this is a story that needs to sit a little bit. Probably they're all pulling from the same source. And the story needs time to develop, really, so that other sources, the other academics, have a chance to weigh in on that issue. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's also really important. I think unless you work in science communication or journalism, you're not that aware of what a press release is. And a press release is basically a lab, an organization, a scientist, just sending the same message to many, many, many different news and information outlets. So they are going to gather similar information. You're going to see a contrast depending on, you know, what, what in what direction the newspaper leans to, the sort of newspaper or news outlet that you're looking into, but you're going to see that similarity. And it's, yeah, you're definitely right. It's something quite important to say. Let it rest for a bit, let it shimmer and then come back to it and then see what, what, what people are saying about it. Yeah, yeah, because it takes reporters and journalists just time, right, mm-hmm. to properly write articles. Very often that first one that you see, it's basically just the journalist has taken the press release and kind of reworded it, <laughs> um, rephrased that press release to put it up so that they get it quick, right? So they get the scoop on that story. Um, but then it takes time for that journalist to then contact their other sources to pull things in and pull and put together a more fleshed out um, article. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Thank you very much for joining me for this discussion on uh, news media literacy. Thanks very much, Christina. Thank you so much, Victor. It was really, really cool to to be here. And I and I, I, I didn't say at the beginning, but I think one of the things in science communication is just keep learning about things and doing this kind of exercise is actually really, really good for like refreshing and thinking and reflecting about the, the role that we, we do. So if you want to learn more about Asian giant hornets or more about things to look for when you're reading up on a news article, you can check out the full show notes at our website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. You can follow us on Twitter at KN underscore podcast. And if you've got your own thoughts or ideas about anything we've mentioned on the show, please feel free to email us. Our email address is knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. (music) 